You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important news of the day through the framework of the key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Jack Farley with Real Vision. We have Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison standing by ready to give their market analysis. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the latest news and data on the coronavirus pandemic. It's 3.30 p.m. Monday, April 6th. The total confirmed case count is now at 1.3 million, set to breach 1.5 million by the end of the week. The total number of deaths globally passed the 70,000 mark today. And the number of active cases continues to rise, and it's set to exceed 1 million in total over the next two or three days. There is some good news, however. Total recoveries are increasing as well, with the total figure set to reach 300,000 by the end of the week. And in Europe, the situation seems to be improving, with daily net cases having decreased since March 28th. This decrease was driven by Spain, Italy, and Germany. But the Europe curve is still ahead of the GMI forecast, and the New York curve has left the GMI forecast behind. Remember that the GMI forecast assumes a tight quarantine and strict adherence to lockdown protocols. Despite the continued progress of the virus, the market today was in buoyant form, with the S&P up almost 6% as of filming, and other equity indices showing similar strength. Now let's go to Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington with their market analysis. Thanks for the update, Jack. It's Monday, April 6th. I'm here in New York, Ash Bennington for Real Vision, and I'm joined by Ed Harrison from the DC Bureau. Ed, you know, I'm looking at markets right now coming up to the close. We're up uh, 5.5% on the S&P. We're up 6% across on the Dow. You know, and it's just economic carnage out there. I, I, I'm just at a loss for how to even frame this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely at a loss. I think that uh, it's it's continuing the narrative that I've been saying for a number of days now, which is that we have a pocket of time during which we are fully on the liquidity spectrum because of the Fed and to a certain degree because of the policymakers in Washington. And people are, ta- are taking that and running with it. Because when you look at markets like credit markets as an example ig credit investment grade we had 200 billion dollars of issuance over the last two weeks we had a hundred billion dollars of inflows into ig credit and now junk is being restarted as well so i think people are getting the sense that things are back to normal or they're normalizing in terms of the markets and as a result there's a bid out there for risk assets equities included but None of this takes into account any of the negative real economy things that we've seen and that we will continue to see going forward. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My feeling as well. You know, and and let's let's frame this up a little bit. Right. So so the S&P peaked at an all time closing high on February 19th at thirty three eighty six. And that had risen 49 percent from uh, from January 20th, uh, 2017, from uh, from Donald Trump's inauguration. And we're now we've now drawn down uh, about 22 percent. 
right? So 22% from a record all-time high, it's really hard to see how there hasn't been more real economic destruction than are represented by what we're seeing reflected in uh, U.S. equity markets. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is that you, you're going to—I mean, let's talk about the the future here, because a lot of times we're looking at the, the present and we're thinking, what's happening with markets now? The real question is, is what's going to happen into the future? Mm. And you can model out a bunch of different scenarios. I think that we can model out scenarios much better now than we did we could even a week ago. I'll give you an example that Italy is—and uh, also Spain, they're cresting in terms of their coronavirus counts and also the death counts. And so the question now is becoming for them, what do we do on the backside of this? How do we get out of the lockdowns? And what is the potential for a second wave or mitigating that second wave? Right. I think, you know, the, the, uh, the most optimistic answer that you can get to that is probably May. Um, and hopefully the second wave will be much less than the first wave, and so there'll be minimal disruption. And so you can take that and sort of, you know, as a wave, take it through the economy with uh, China first, places like Italy second, uh, places like New York, uh, Seattle later, and then even later Washington, D.C., and then even later uh, the South and the Midwest of the United States. So it's a rolling sort of uh, backside reallocation, which probably will last you into August. I talked to Leland Miller earlier today, and he was talking about the supply chain issues with China. And this is Leland Miller of the China, China Beige Book. And of, China uh, Beige Book, exactly. Yeah. This was a Real Vision Live uh, spot that we did, and he was basically saying that uh, we're looking at a, a Q4 at a minimum in terms of you know almost getting to a, a more normal situation. So that's to me that's more sort of an L sh sort of shaped recovery, and if you look at it from a worst case scenario, that L continues on into 2021, well into it, in a way that impacts earnings uh, not only this year, but next year, and then also into the future. So I think that we're, we're really looking at some serious earnings problems. You know, you, you said a word that I think is so critical earlier in that uh, in that discussion. You said uh, wave. And I think that, you know, one of the things that concerns me a little bit, first of all, I, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have a medical background. We've seen far too many financial guys get way over their skis talking about epidemiology. I'm not going to do that. But there's one thing that does really concern me, right? We see this chart, the chart that's been shown about the, about the case fatality rates and the total overall death rate that we've seen. And it's a horrible phrase to even use. But this is the situation we find ourselves in, right? And we've seen it that uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci have shown it at the White House. It's a chart that rises, you know, at a very regular rate, then it peaks, then it rolls over and it declines. There's this neat little margin of uncertainty around both sides. It looks a little bit like the cone of uncertainty on a hurricane map. And I, I, you have to wonder at some level to what extent this reflects reality and and to what extent this is something that we, you know we can easily model look we've in economics and finance we look at a lot of charts and um, and many of them purport to tell one story and then when that you know time unfolds it looks a little bit different you know you can go up just on the Wikipedia page for Spanish flu and you can look and when you look at the when you look at the death rates from Spanish flu or the the total amount of people who have you know unfortunately died from it you know you see it, it peaks at around June of 1918. 
and then it peaks again in November of 1918, and then it peaks again in March of 1919. And, you know, obviously this is something that you hope doesn't play out again, but we really don't know. We just don't know. It's uncertainty. It's nighty and uncertainty. It's unmodelable uncertainty around what the trajectory of this virus will be. And I and I wonder to what extent, you know, to get back into the domain of the things that we feel pretty comfortable talking about, I wonder to what extent that's been factored into the equation, thought about, planned for from an economic policy perspective. Well, no, it hasn't been. I mean, and also, I'm looking at it purely from an earnings and uh, credit perspective because, you know, the the timetable that I laid out was sort of a best case scenario. You're right. talking about the uh, lesser than best case scenarios, the worst case scenarios. That is, you know, a second wave, which is uh, large in terms of infection rates because you uh, let go of your controls early, and and also the fact that the virus comes back in a more virulent form at some point later on, those are the kinds of things that will make it even worse. So a best case scenario is this rolling sort of of uh, economic uh, restart that happens in June, July, August, and then you still have the supply chain issues that you have to deal with, and that lasts throughout the end of the year. That's the best case scenario. And the market right. isn't even really thinking about those those scenarios. For instance, uh, look at the oil companies. And uh, oil was being bid up into the 30s. I think that Brent is still into the 30s. Is that a realistic scenario, given the oversupply that we have now, and given the fact that we had a meeting for OPEC Plus that was canceled? So, you know, there was a run-up uh, for uh, on the back of this whole concept that we were going to have some sort of supply cut, and it didn't happen, and yet we're still 60% of the way up into the into that run-up. We only uh, retraced a little bit of that. So I think that there's a lot of more that there's a lot more downside risk as the numbers come forward. Yeah, and you know, and, and we also think about the the broader context here, and right, this is something we talked about. I, I slept about three hours last night because here in Manhattan's Upper East Side, I was being woken up by sirens every fifteen or twenty minutes, and and you begin to think about what that means. It's your your neighbors being rushed to the hospital in grave condition. You know, the I would describe this neighborhood where I am, and I've gotten out a little bit, not too far, as a quiet, peaceful, orderly, economic train wreck. Right there, are, there are signs in the windows of stores that say, uh, "Please help us stay open." People are starting GoFundMe sites, uh, and and to you know to try and raise money for their for their neighborhood businesses, relying on the goodwill of the people who go there all the time to lend a helping hand. And the reality of this situation is when you when we start talking about the things that you're 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 talking about, which are things like earnings and credit uh, ability to service debt, you know, all of those uh, obviously that revenue that's lost. And someone else's uh, someone else's wages, and there's a feed through effect with small businesses and the, the wage earners who work at those small businesses and own those small businesses, pulling down large Fortune 500 corporate earnings, which obviously has an impact on credit quality, you know, and so on and so forth. And this feedback loop just continues. But what we see on the ground, right? It's really hard to feel optimistic about the ultimate feed through about where this goes. Is that what your experience is where you are in Washington D.C.? Are you seeing similar things there? And how do you factor it in? to your broader context of the framework of your working on? No, we're not seeing it yet. I think that uh, um, 
Here's how I look at it, just from a, a, a personal perspective, is that what's happening in New York is totally removed from what's happening in Washington, D.C., which is removed from, say, what's happening in Oklahoma. And what I mean by that is uh, you guys are having a tragedy, a human tragedy right now that we're not having. Yet, at the same time, when you hear where the next wave is going to hit, Washington, D.C. is right on the map. Uh, there's nothing happening at the convention center. J uh, the Javits Convention Center in New York is is now being turned into a hospital, essentially. Uh, yeah. That's not happening in D.C. There's no preparation for anything like that. People are going out, walking, almost like it's a normal thing. The only thing that's preventing complete normalcy is the shutdown that's been mandated by the government here in this area. So then you go to Oklahoma or a place like that or Arkansas, where it's almost entirely normal, uh, where you can do almost entirely normal things. So the, the truth of the matter is, is that people don't really live it until it actually happens happens to them. And then right. that's when the, the, the true consequence of it all uh, comes into play. Let me, you know, let me give you um, something that I thought was interesting I read today, speaking of small businesses and how it really does impact them. And this is why, for instance, Oklahoma is waiting until the last minute. Uh, Wells Fargo tweeted this out this morning. Due to strong interest in the Paycheck Protection Program, we reached lending capacity and closed the intake form. We are lending to nonprofits and small businesses with less than 50 employees and will support nonprofits focusing helping others other small businesses that's it so this program that the the government uh, designed to help small businesses has basically been shut down overnight at Wells Fargo and I'm sure that the same is true elsewhere Th yeah. these small businesses are going to go out of business many of them they're going to go bankrupt and so when you talk about people's livelihoods, their wages, et cetera, that's exactly what's happening. So the numbers that we got from weeks one and two, 10 million, could easily become 20 and 30 million over the next four to six weeks. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. Um, you know, we, we saw a similar thing happen at Bank of America. They were the first to get their online form up, and they were absolutely inundated, you know, massive amounts. I think $22.8 billion in loan requests, 58,000 some odd lending requests. Uh, it was the numbers were extraordinary. Um, you cited a statistic, I think, earlier this morning that uh, there's an estimate by, that there's 29% of economic activity already offline in the United States. That's right. Yeah. So I, I write every morning to uh, help me here and uh, on the site that I have. And uh, I was saying that we're seeing 29 percent already. Those are the, the estimates of uh, what we're seeing shut down. So you can take that on a uh, an annualized basis. That's a 29 percent uh, drop in GDP. If that goes for four quarters, that's a 29 percent drop in GDP annual you know, total. Uh, so that's the kind of level that we're talking about right now. Uh, that, that's a level that I just, you know, when you talk about 22% down on equities, it doesn't really compute to me. And, and speaking of equities going down, uh, I want to talk about J.P. Morgan Chase as an example, because J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, said he's thinking about eliminating their dividend entirely. So the, he's getting out, he's getting ahead of the regulators. He's getting out in front of uh, you know the coming credit write downs that we're going to see. 
that that's what's that's what's going to happen. So all these things are occurring, and the market is rallying five and six percent ahead of that. It's it's like a train wreck that you can see coming ahead. Yeah, and I think that uh, I think that you know we've already seen that happen from UK banks, and they've also uh, all vowed that their senior uh, their senior executives will no longer uh, will not draw a, a bonus this year. Uh, you know, and, you know. Speaking of the UK, I, I think again talking about how markets can seem out of touch with what's going on. I mean, to me, the, one of the most extraordinary things was seeing that the you know the, the designated survivor in the UK is the gentleman named Dominic Robb, who's the foreign secretary. You know, has said the prime minister. Uh, Prime Minister is resting comfortably. Boris Johnson is resting comfortably in a hospital. And I mean, the the, the fact that this is something that we've all assimilated, and 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 against that backdrop, you know, investors think, well, boy, this looks like a time to buy the dip. It's 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 really hard to connect those things. I mean, this is this is the sort of thing I said. To a friend, this is like a Stephen King novel, right? This is something that you, you'd be difficult to imagine. If I told you the scenario, you know, 60 days ago, it would be impossible to believe. And now we're seeing it, and yet equity markets are rising against that backdrop, against that context. And you have to wonder: Is the moment of reckoning coming? Yeah, I, and you know, my my basic trade, if you will, uh, that I I still think is intact, is, is valid, is HYG against LQD. Uh, the the Fed will backstop. Uh, investment-grade credits, but they are not going to go down into the high-yield department. So small and medium-sized businesses, which aren't in, uh, they're they're not going to have a backstop, as I was just saying before. And even large companies that are lower credit-rated, they're not going to have a back, backstop either. So that's where the carnage is going to be. And then at some point, there's going to be a line where the uh, policymakers say, "Cut! We're going to we're going to do something for you. We're going to help you in some." Capacity. Capacity. That's going to be at investment grade credit, and and the question is is how how are equities affected? I would say that equities are affected because they're residual, and th that means that there's less residual left over for equities after investment grade credit gets the backstop. Well, you know, to stay on the fixed income side for a moment before we get into equities a little bit more, you know, I'm curious. It, it almost seems like an, an invisible line in the sand between between IG and HY, because obviously there are broader macroeconomic feedthroughs, and you know, a company that's rated uh, double V versus double A, right? There, there. This is the this is the point I was making earlier, which is that wages and revenue are two sides of the same flow, and there's going to be a feedthrough effect. And how does that impact the broader economy? And uh, you know, does that basically put this weird sort of macroeconomic distortion in place where you have, you know, the Fed or the Treasury in, in, in conjunction lending through some kind of liquidity facilities to the highest credit rated companies. And how does that work? I mean, we, we, we just don't know, right? Yeah, so the, there's going to be a, a distortion, you know, that line in the sand, it's hard to to know where the slippery slope, where the, the Fed makes the cutoff, especially mm -hmm. with regard to the 50 percent or more of a paper that is triple B. You know, uh, the, the thing that I find interesting is w people are now talking about the ratings agencies now. And we know from the 2007 to 2009 crisis that the ratings agencies were behind the curve. They were giving ratings to companies uh, that were inflated in the, the early 2000s. We now see that that's exactly the case here. A lot of people were talking about if you look at the metrics of triple B rated companies uh, and you assess 
them compared to say triple B's in the early 2000s, the, uh, then you would see that they were actually junk rated companies. And so now they're starting to trade like junk. Like Carnival, which I mentioned before, was, the, was one of the places that went out in, um, they, they came out to market. They had to pay up like a junk company, much worse than Yum! Brands. So we're going to see stuff like that. And eventually, the ratings agencies are going to just start downgrading. But they're, th when they start downgrading, it's too late. They're reactive. They're not proactive. You have to do your homework to understand which of these companies are going to fall into junk. And that's where the line is. Once those companies are down there, that's it. They're, they're out. It's, as I say, it's, it's almost like the European sovereign debt crisis. Greece is not eligible, or during the sovereign debt crisis, it wasn't for uh, quantitative easing. When the ECB buys debt, they're not buying Greek debt in the European sovereign debt crisis. That's the same thing for junk bonds. Right. You know, if you're having the debate of is it liquidity or is it solvency, maybe it's already too late. Maybe that's the moral <laughs> of the story. I, I mean, you know, I, I it's also a weird moral hazard thing, right? So can companies then not fall into junk if there's an implicit backstop from the Fed? I mean, they're just you get all into all of these sort of very unusual cases and scenarios. I, you know, I think this has probably been my least quantitative uh, RVDB we've ever done because I'm so skeptical of what of what metrics tell us at this point, right? It's how do you how do you catch a falling knife? How do you measure the trajectory of a falling knife? It's very difficult to say. And again, you know, against the backdrop of what we're seeing in U.S. equity markets right now, I at least, and, and it sounds like you share that, there's just this sense that, boy, we, we, we may not have an accurate representation of reality. Yeah, and what I would caution is is, is that, you know, uh, if you think about uh, Thomas Petterfee, who I spoke to, you know, a few months ago, he is uh, you know, the Hungarian founder of one of the, the best uh, brokerage companies out there. And he was saying, look, you know, what I'm concerned about is, is uh, the flows, that when the market goes down, it's going to go down in a very uh, abrupt way, and especially to the degree that we now are facing a situation where you have automated flows that are dominant and then you know two of the flows that are, are potentially non-automated are no longer there to prop up the the market on the downside that is you know 401k money as people start to lose their jobs or they start to husband cash and decide you know we're not going to put money into our 401k and then the the share buybacks those are you know great stabilizers for the market when the market goes down you're still getting those flows in so when these numbers start to come in you know just like we saw uh, you know, a month ago, we're going to see a very quick, sharp drop. And I think that the, the pace at which these things happen these days, uh, it's frightening. And I think that's what we're going to see again. Yeah, those passive flows are going to roll off. I guess final question, we said we we're going to get back to equities. How do you even begin or do you not begin to think about estimating what, you know, what corporate earnings start to look like for Q3, Q4? Yeah, I don't think that uh, it's it's the nighty uncertainty that you were talking about. My view is is that uh, Q1 earnings, which are going to come out starting in about a week, are not going to be very helpful uh, for two reasons. Reason number one is most of the earnings there are going to be for January and February, and uh, there was nothing, there wasn't a huge impact on most global companies at that particular point in time. There will be some impact in March, but not enough. Uh, to really shake people. 
Um, and then there's not going to be on the other side a lot of visibility into the future. I think companies are going to be very hesitant to give any sort of earnings outlook into the future because they just don't have any outlook. And so right. we essentially are going to be flying blind until we get the uh, you know the the downgrades uh, and we get the 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 numbers in July. So the yeah. Q2 numbers, I think that's when we'll get it. So between now and then, uh, you know, there's going to be a repricing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we're not going to know until Q2 ends at the end of June, and we're not going to start to see those numbers filter out till July. I suspect we'll probably hear, uh, we'll start to hear CFOs cautioning on right. earnings. The, the but, warnings. Uh, we'll, we'll start yeah. getting the warnings. Uh, and some of them are going to be horrific, uh, and, and, th and that's what we're going to see. Uh, just, just as an aside, in terms of the real economy, remember that the 700,000 number that we got on Friday for job losses only went through mid-March. So the number that we're going to get at the beginning of May is going to go through mid-April. So we have the three, the three million number. Uh, that we got uh, for jobless claims. We have the six million number, and then we're going to have two more numbers on top of that. So that's 10 million jobs lost, plus whatever else is lost in the next two weeks. Uh, so that would be, I would say, in the order of 15 to 20 million uh, jobs that are lost uh, immediately in this in this next uh, go round. Will the market react to that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even hazard a guess, but I would say that it's highly likely that it's going to be uh, that it's going to be falling off at an accelerating rate. It's yeah. definitely the second derivative here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I laugh. It's almost like gallows humor, but that, that's yeah. all you can do. I mean, it's exactly from, what it is. From, from my perspective, it's just about you know where you are. Stay safe, and for me, you know stay safe as well because what what's happening for you is going to happen over here for me very shortly unfortunately yeah you know you you make a really interesting point when you were talking about the regionalization of this issue earlier and and we saw it here in New York and i remember friends were flagging me and pinging me with tweets from italy saying you know it's coming it's coming it's coming but there's this just it, it's a it's not a political thing it's just a human thing there just seems to be this inability to believe it or to want to believe it until you see it outside your window so right. if you're you know, if you're somewhere out there in the in the Midwest or in the Southeast uh, or someplace that this hasn't hit yet, take care of yourself, take care of your family, prepare as best you can, and stay safe. Good way to end that, uh, Ash. And uh, we'll be talking again tomorrow. Um, thanks for joining us, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.